welcome to the podcast of Broadway Baptist Church in Lexington, Kentucky, and the preaching of Pastor Daniel Othman, a biblical church centered on Christ. In 1526, Portuguese, these slave traders, went to West Africa and literally captured people and brought them to Brazil. 1526. That began the transatlantic slave trade to Americas. Now, Christopher Columbus also brought um, enslaved Africans to um, the, the, the islands there in, uh, um, near Haiti, and I forgot the name of those islands, and that, air, that general area that he landed in in 1493. 1494 to 1495, somewhere around. And on his very first voyage in 1492, a few weeks ago, we remembered Columbus on Columbus Day. Yes, I think you're right. Beecher, look at that. He knows his history. Say the word one more time. Galapagos. That is where they went. You're right. So they went there. So you must be studying that with your son's history. Or you just remember it. So, so, but they went there and that obviously was the very first slaves that originally came to the Americas in the late 1400s. But the slave trade, the regular practice of starting with the Portuguese to go to West Africa, capture Africans, and basically bring them to Brazil and the South American and the Caribbean area, that began this uh, transatlantic slave trade. Now, that was continuing on until 1619, some British soldiers on a, on, a sh- on a ship, they went and intercepted a Portuguese um, slave trip headed to the, the, uh, those, the islands down there. They would go to all the different islands, wherever they, they it was for agri- these were agricultural workers. They enslaved people to go work these giant plantations. That's what was going on. And then the Portuguese, the people that owned the plantations, we'd get, they would use free labor to, to make money. That was what was occurring all throughout Brazil, sugarcane, anything they wanted to grow. Well, some British actually took, came and found a ship headed to the uh, Caribbean islands and captured that ship and rerouted it to Jamestown, Virginia. That was in 1619. Roughly 20 or so slaves arrived in America in 1619. That was the beginning of the African-American history here in the United States. It started in 1619. That's one year before the Mayflower. So, now remember the difference, if you remember your American history. There was already a settlement going on in Jamestown, Williamsburg, that area there in, um, in Virginia, but that is not the, that didn't become our U.S. government. That came from the pilgrims in the May, Mayflower, that line of government up in the New England. That's what ended up becoming our, our nation as we see it. Many of those folks there in that Virginia area passed away. The transatlantic slave trade continued all the way in to the early 1900s. I believe about 1906 or so, 1920, 
Now, they, obviously, it wasn't coming to the United States then, but there were still slave trips, slave ships coming into certain areas of South and Central America. The last slave trip to come into the United States landed in Mobile Bay, Alabama in 1860. It was actually illegal at that point. Slavery was ill. It had the, the slave trade was illegal. Slavery was legal until the Civil War ended in 1865. But the, the, the idea of going to Africa, West Africa, and Angola, and the nations there, Nigeria, and capturing people, and putting them on a boat, and bringing them in chains to America was illegal here in the United States. But what happened is there were still enslaved people, that ones that were already, that already existed here with that. That ended, the last ship sailed in Mobile Bay, and they knew it was illegal in 1860, and they buried it underneath, they buried it in the ground. And just about three years ago, they found that ship in Mobile Bay. When it was really a low tide, they found that ship from 1860. Uh, there. I share all this because in the course of four or five hundred years, beginning with that first slave trip, first slave ship in 1526, 12 to 13 million Africans came over on slave ships. One to two million Africans died. There was a very high mortality rate on those ships. It was customary, you put 100 people on a boat and you're gonna arrive about 85. And you know, 15, there would be a large percent that would pass away on the slave ship. This is what we, when we think of slavery here in America, that is the slavery we think of. Africans that are captured, that were basically being used as forced labor here in America, not just in the United States, those all through Central and all, certainly South America, all of Brazil was built on slavery. All throughout that, and for mostly agricultural reasons, because the folks needed, they needed laborers. This is before machines, big machines that would do their stuff. Now, we're about to read here in the Bible about slavery. What I just described, the transatlantic slave trade is different than biblical slavery. I'm going to go ahead and tell you the differences before we read the scripture. You can go ahead and turn your Bible if you want to. In the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20, verses 22 through chapter 21, verse 11. Then we will flip over to the New Testament book of Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 6. That's going to be our scripture this evening we're going to be looking at. In the Bible, there's two different standards. You can easily say... Yes, um, and I, I want to share this before I get into it. I just gave you that history, but it's very, right now, what happened is two years ago was 2019. That's a 400-year anniversary of what we would call the transatlantic slave trade from when the first Africans arrived in Virginia, the colony of Virginia, in 1619, all the way 1619 to 2019. The New York Times in 2019 published a story, a, a series of articles, and it, uh, it's called the 1619 Project. Y'all can look this up. It's incredibly controversial. It's being accused of rewriting America's history. Basically, what it's saying is, is America's history was built on slavery. 
That's where our wealth came from. And that's why we have class systems in our nation today. I'm just curious. Raise your hand. Have you heard of the 1619 Project? Anybody heard of this? Okay, Beecher's our historian over here, so he knows. So, so that is something. I'm good, good Beecher. I'm glad somebody's heard. So uh, you can look this up because the controversy, probably Beecher, why you know about it, is because it's being taught in schools. Uh, that's the controversy today because some of their work is being put in school textbooks to say, wait a minute, this shouldn't, this isn't all necessarily accurate. But we're not here to talk about the 1619 Project, and um, but that's beside the point. But th- this is a popular topic. But I want to let you know what the Bible says about slavery and give you uh, the two different slavery, two different types of slavery that was going on in the Bible. There was immoral slavery that was occurring. And they, it was occurring by non-Israelite nations. A perfect example of that was Egypt. Egypt enslaved the Hebrews. Other nations during Bible times used slaves, and they abused those slaves. That was not how the Israelites were to treat their slaves. God did permit for the Israelites. Remember, the Old Testament is a history of Israel. It's also a history of the world, too. And it's preparing for the New Testament, for Jesus' coming. But in the Old Testament time, slaves were permitted. And here's how it was. You were to, if you basically voluntarily, your family allowed you to become a slave, it was a six-year contract. In year seven, you were released. They had strict rules that you were not to kidnap people. So the problem with the transatlantic slave trade, you had people going to West Africa, those nations there, kidnapping people, literally, against their will, and bringing them to the United States. That is kidnapping in the Bible. That's wrong. That's the slave trade. The Bible calls that slave traders. That's actually mentioned in 1 Corinthians as a sin that leads people to hell. The trafficking of people should not be for God's people. But God did allow slavery. You were to, there were certain expectations how you were to treat your slave. And not only that, on year seven, they were to be released. It was not forever the rest of their life. And one of the reasons why is because the Hebrews were in slavery in Egypt and God freed them. Why year seven? The Lord created the earth in six days. The seventh day, he rested. That was the day of rest. So there, it was an, there was a stoppage, even for the day of rest, a freedom, even for the Lord. We're going to see here in our Bibles about this type of, about what we would call, if, if you could use the phrase, appropriate slavery. You say, why is it appropriate? Because God actually allowed for this. He made a provision. It probably wouldn't be appropriate today, of course, but it's also mentioned in the New Testament. So God is affirming in the Old and New Testament about slavery. Now, what's tricky about this is Israel at these times, New and Old Testament, they are surrounded by peoples that are completely abusing slavery. So all the other nations around them were were capturing people, beating them half to death, 
in making them do whatever they want to. That's not for the Israelites. That's not for God's people. They weren't to do that. That's not what the picture we see here. So we're going to read this here, and I want you to follow along. Exodus chapter 20, verse 22. We're going to start here. This is right after the Ten Commandments. Moses receives these additional laws, and this is about worship here. There's going to be several differences in godly worship. Then we get into uh, slavery. Then the Lord told Moses, this is what you are to say to the Israelites. You have seen that I have spoken to you from heaven. Do not make gods of silver to rival me. Do not make gods of gold for yourselves. Make an earthen altar for me and sacrifice it your burnt offerings and fellowship offerings your flocks and herds. I will come to you and bless you in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. It talks about here an earthen altar. Why does it say that? This is our altar right here. This altar is made of plastic. I do like our pulpit, but I want you all to know in some Baptist churches, they would not approve of this pulpit because it's not made out of wood. Do you know why? Because of this Bible verse. I'm standing on a wooden stage. That would qualify. This is a wooden stage up here, this altar. But this is not earthen. Earthen means it's made from wood. It's made from what God has given us. Plastic would not qualify as an earthen altar. Now, I do like this. It's light. It moves. It, It serves its purpose. But in Bible times... They were used stones, wood. They were to build up their altar. It was not to be made of gold, silver, different metals. You use the wood, use the rocks, use the soil. You build an altar to the Lord with the earth that God has made you. Not these these other things. The pagans worshipped with gold. They used these, these precious metals. So we see here that the Israelites, they're being set apart with their sacrifice. Not only that, if you look at this, he says, I will come to you, latter part of verse 24, don't miss this. There's a locality of this. I will come to you and bless you in every place where I cause my name to be remembered. Meaning, no matter where you are at, as the ark moves, as the cloud moves, wherever you're at, you can worship the Lord. You can go to the Baptist church here. You can go to the Baptist church there. God is still there. He's saying there's a local presence with the church. We are a local body of believers. We live here in the Bluegrass region. We worship here in Lexington. We vote. We live. We go to school. We shop here. There's a local aspect of our community. When we do ministry, we are to make sure that when we're out and about in the city, we're constantly inviting people to church. I want to tell y'all something. This morning, Lady and Miss Cheryl Bill's Sunday school class, what, uh, she invited one of her friends, and I was talking to them, her after the service about joining our church. She's only become five or six weeks, the lady. If you invite your neighbors to church, you extend an invitation to come to Broadway Baptist, I want to tell you, folks, will, they'll take you up on the offer. 
ministry life is local. What we see on national news, that's great for Washington, but that's not the world I live in. I don't live in Washington. I drive down Clay's Mill. I go down Harrisburg Road. This is my community that needs Jesus. Every day, 150,000 people die in the world. 150,000. Guaranteed job to be a funeral director. Always. You always have, you always have customers. You're bearing, folks. Probably as the population rises, that means more people will die. Many, if not the majority of these people, are, are lost without Christ. They do not know the Lord. Every day, 150,000 people in the world, every single day, die. And our responsibility as Bible-believing Christians is to make sure those here in our life, they learn and know about Jesus, that Jesus saves. I want to give you a perfect example of when, when to do personal evangelism, make it local. Do you ever have a repairman? Do you ever have folks come into your home, maybe to fix the washing machine, to do some type of work on the house, or whatever, you're, whatever broke, they've come to fix it? Anyone who steps into your home are you looking, remember what Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So if an outsider comes into your home, it's your home. You have the responsibility to tell them about Jesus. Look, Broadway Baptist Church, this is our church. We love our church. We love the Lord here. If an outsider, if someone comes and sits in these pews, and we've never in our life have seen them before. No clue who they are. Do we have an attitude, well, I don't know who they are. I don't want to offend them. I don't want to be too pushy. I won't, I won't preach on Jesus today. I won't preach out of the Bible. Of course not. When someone comes in your home, you should have the same attitude. There's somebody in my house. I need to tell them about the Lord. As for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. You can witness to people who are in your circle. There's, the Lord says, I will worship. Look, he's saying in verse 24, I will come and bless you in every single place, whether at home, whether at church, at work, at school, at, at the jumpy land where the teenagers are, wherever they're at. The Lord will bless them. And we take confidence in that scripture. There's a power in the presence of the Lord wherever we're at. Keep going here in your Bibles. Verse 25. If you make a stone altar for me, do not build it out of cut stones. If you use your chisel on it, you will defile it. Meaning there's a simplicity with this altar. He doesn't want perfectly shaped uh, rocks and stones. You go pick a, a rock from the stream, from the pond, or wherever it's at, and you just build an altar. It doesn't need to be perfect. You're missing the point if it's perfect. It's okay if it's broken, it's got some chips over there. The Lord does, that does not press God with your chiseling ability. He is not impressed with our woodmanship. He's looking for folks with a pure heart that care about worship of Him. There's a simplicity of 
the worship that the Lord is expecting. Do not go up to my altar on steps so that your nakedness is not exposed on it. That means there's a purity. Remember, I've talked about it before. Remember in the good old days, you go in some choirs and they will have a modesty rail before the choir. That's for purity. You, you don't want to be looking at inappropriate things up on the stage. Folks need, need, need to be pure. It's, the focus is on the Lord, not on other people. And he's saying here, you need to be careful about how you present yourself as your purity when you come before the Lord. These are the ordinances that you are to set before them. So God has made it very clear that his type of worship is to be modest, pure. This is all in contrast of the peoples of that day, the Canaanites, those that do not know the Lord, the pagans, they're doing everything. They're using gold, they're taking their clothes off, they're chiseling these nice altars and making this great presentation to a, a false god. And the Lord is saying, no, that's not how I'm worshipped at all. I'm looking at folks' heart. I care about that. Now we're getting to slaves here. Verse 2. When you buy a Hebrew slave, that's very important. We're talking about fellow Hebrews, fellow Israelites. These are not people you've captured. He is to serve for six years. Then the seventh year, he is to leave as a free man without paying anything. Six years is all you get. Seventh year, he is to be released. If he arrives alone, he is to leave alone. If he arrives with a wife, his wife is to leave with him. That means the family stayed intact. They stayed together. You weren't to break the families up. The slave trade, typically what they would do, they would actually try to capture pregnant women because they knew that would be another child. They wouldn't get people who were elderly or who maybe had broken legs and stuff. They wanted strong people that would sell well on a slave market. That was the goal. It was all about profit. And the Bible is saying, if you, if you go and get a slave for your house or for your field, you, you get the whole family too. You're, you're allowing someone to come in and do this. Now, I want to explain here. Typically, I'll, I'll, I'll get to it. Here we go. We'll keep going here. Verse 4. The wife and his children are, are to belong to her master, and the man must leave alone. Or let me, verse 4 says, If his master gives him a wife and his, bears him sons or daughters, the wife and her children belong to her master, and the man must leave alone. But the slave declares, I love my master, my wife and my children. I do not want to leave as a free man. His master is to bring him to the judges and then bring him to the door or doorpost. His master will pierce his ear with an awl, and he will serve his master for the rest of life. Meaning, if... It was a positive experience if the slave wanted to remain under the leadership of this man here, he could. He could actually do that. And they would actually pierce his ear with an awl. There would be a big circle. Uh, you, you would see a giant, basically like an ice pick, you would run through their ear and you would notice that they would have this awl in their ear might not stay there forever, but you could just look at their piercing saying they are owned by someone else forever. And why would they do this? Typically slavery in the Bible, who, what type of Hebrews would get enslaved? Extremely very poor people 
they didn't have good prospects for maybe marriage, particularly females, they would, the fathers and mothers would actually give their children away because maybe they would not be selected. Prearranged marriages were common in the Bible. So if you didn't have a lot of wealth, you were very poor, then another man from the community might not want to, nobody would make that arrangement with your family. So you would then actually find a home for your child, your daughter particularly, so that she would basically go and help out around the house and in the fields. And that would actually, you would hope that that family would take her in or in that situation, because now she's under the author leadership of that home, maybe it's a more wealthy home, someone would select her as a wife. So it could actually help improve your prospects and your mobility, so to say, in life. I know this is hard for us because obviously we don't live this way, but back in Bible times, this is what would happen. It's Hebrew people giving themselves to their fellow Hebrews in slavery, and they were to be treated fairly. You would not go out to a pagan person and offer yourself as a slave. That was totally forbidden. Not allowed. You did not do that. In fact, if you look down in this scripture, if you skip down to verse 16, it says, whoever kidnaps, this is 21.16, kidnaps a person must be put to death. So understand, this is voluntary slavery. You're giving your, it's not kidnapping. It's not against their will. Whoever kidnaps a person must be put to death. Whether he sells the person, whether he sells the person or the person is found in his possession. So you can't sell people and you cannot kidnap people. It's, that's, they, that is warranted of death. Not only that, if you skip down, look at verse 26. Slaves are not to, masters are not to abuse their slaves. Look at verse 26 and 27. When a man strikes the eye of his male or female slave and destroys it, he must let the slave go free as compensation for his eye. If he knocks out his tooth or his male and female slave, he must let the slave go free in compensation for his tooth. So if you abuse or beat up your slave, you by law were required. All of a sudden, they were released. You cannot do that. This was not slavery in the, in, in the, um, in the translating slave trade in old, the Old South, the American colonies whatsoever. A girl here is many ways, especially a poor girl, would hope that joining this family would actually help her in life. It would, it would be an advantage for her prospects in marriage. It goes on to say, verse 7, when a man sells his daughter as a concubine, she is not to leave as the male slaves do. If she is displeasing to her master who chose her for himself, then he must let her be redeemed. He has no right to sell her to foreigners because he has acted treacherously to her. Or if he chooses her for, her for his son, he must deal with her according to the customary treatment of daughters. If he takes an additional wife, he must not reduce the food, clothing, or marital rights of the first wife. And if, he doesn't, if he does not do these three things for her, she may leave free of charge without any payment. This is hard for us to understand in today's culture but we have to remember, women maybe didn't have the same rights and the same views that was looked at in 2021. So it was very customary. Maybe you might allow someone else 
you would, uh, especially if you didn't have the resources, a lot of financial resources, you would give away your daughters if nobody else. So, and then, but they, they had to be treated a certain way or they could actually go free with that. Flip over in your Bibles here to Ephesians chapter 6. This will be our last scripture we're going to look at because the New Testament also talks about slavery. And it says here, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 5, Slaves, obey your human master with fear and trembling in the sincerity of your heart as you would Christ. Slaves are commanded to obey their masters. Don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ. Do God's will from your heart. Paul's writing this. And he's saying, you might be in slavery. You might have a difficult position in life, but you are to remember, ultimately, you are a slave to Jesus Christ. The Lord owns you, and you are to always represent him in everything you do. He is what sets you apart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people. Could we not apply that today? Do we not live in a world of complaining it's easy to complain. You complain about your job. You complain about our world, our culture, the news, our city. And the Lord is saying, no, you're different. You are to serve with a good attitude. God's people should be known by their good attitude. He's saying, you are different. Knowing that whenever, whatever good one does, slave or free, he will receive this back for the Lord. Our ultimate reward is not here on earth. Paul's saying your real reward's in heaven. You're working for him there. And masters, treat your slaves the same way without threatening them. Because you know that both their master and yours is in heaven. And there is no favoritism with him. God does not grant favoritism. He doesn't. He's telling us that you are to treat people fairly. You aren't to abuse them because God, does, God treats you fairly. We are judged by the blood of Jesus Christ, each and every single one of us. Our last breath, I've shared it before, our last breath here on earth will be our first breath and we'll be looking at Jesus. And he will not, he will not be impressed by anything we do other than have a relationship with him. Now you think about this entire message here on slavery. And we have to remember the story of American slavery is tragic. It's sad. It's had grave consequences for millions and millions of Africans. Many of them died coming over here on the boat. They arrived dead or they were thrown to sea. Families broken up. But in the midst of all of that, we know slavery did exist in the Bible. The slavery God allowed was one of great respect, was one after six years, they were released on the year seven. And not only that, it was not one of involuntary, but voluntary. Never do we see in the Bible of kidnapped slavery forced against people's will that they had to be owned by someone else. All the pagan nations around them had to do that, but not God's people. God has a plan for us. That plan is fulfilled in Ephesians chapter 
6, where he says, you are to do God's will from your heart. Now this evening, I tell you, Jesus Christ has a will and a purpose and plan. It's not by accident God brought you here. God wants you to turn to him. Jesus wants you to trust in him. And this is, this is the place that you can come and learn about and give your life to Christ. I'm going to lead us in prayer. Then I'm going to invite you to come and respond to the gospel. God, I pray for the folks here this evening. Lord, we know your word is true. It tells us very plain and simply that we are to do your will. Whether that is following you in believer's baptism or following you in making this your church home or following you and asking Christ, asking you, Lord, to come into our life. Lord, we are saved by receiving the gospel into our hearts. Lord, we have confidence in your word. Lord, I pray at this invitation that this moment does not pass. The altar is open. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Beecher is going to lead us in a song. I invite you to stand up. We close every worship service here with our opportunity to respond. You come down forward. I'll pray for you. Brother Hurd and I will. You can make this your church home or you can give your life to Christ. We have baptism in two weeks if you want to get baptized on November 7th. Beecher. What can we